0: We're looking at Luke chapter 23, uh, the crucifixion. We're starting in verse 26, and this is the word of God, our Savior. And as they led him away, that's Jesus, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. And they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and on the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you were the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals, who were hanging, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying... Our Lord, we thank you for the gospel, the good news, and as we come to the heart of the gospel, the heart of uh, what makes us Christians, the cross, would you guide our meditation? Would you stir up our hearts to wonder and awe at what our Lord has done for us? I ask for your Holy Spirit to come and take your holy word through an imperfect teacher and speak your perfect word uh, to your people, uh, to their lives. You know their lives. You know what they need to hear. I pray that you would translate it for them, and I pray that you would lead us into worship of our Savior who died for us. And we ask this in His name, Amen. So, uh, we we have a lot to say today. We're um, we're looking at the cross of Jesus, the Jesus crucifixion. This is the you know, biggest event, maybe this in the resurrection or the biggest event in the whole Bible, the thing that is the heart of what, you know, Christians are, we got a cross up here, the the center of what we believe we're looking at uh, in these verses. And it's so central, you know, when Paul was writing to the uh, Corinthian church, he said to them that, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was my whole message. That was the, my whole way of being with you. That, was the, that represented everything about who we are as a church and, and his mission was the cross of Jesus. And, uh, you know, theologians throughout history have, have tried to summarize what is the meaning of the cross. What is it What's happening there? What's the significance of it? And there have been all different uh, kinds of ideas. And the reality of it is that there are just layers and layers and layers and different meanings uh, different angles. It's very multifaceted. It's very, very complex. There's all these truths that are happening here in Jesus being nailed to a cross. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to try to look at a, f- a few, actually, not just a few six. Of those meanings, six of those truths that are in this uh, that come out in this passage—they're all different. They're all intertwined with each other, uh, but it's uh, but fascinating. And my hope is that the Lord would just stir in us a wonder, an awe at uh, at what God has done through Jesus on the cross. So, six things on the meaning of the cross. What does it mean? This is the first. The first thing that the cross means is it's a call to discipleship. The cross is a call to discipleship. Now, usually when we uh, think about what does the cross mean, what has Jesus done for us, we don't start with discipleship. You know, that's kind of what we do, right? And, uh, and we usually think that the cross is something that Jesus has done for us. And so we usually think, well, Jesus did something for me, and then as a response, then we move to discipleship. But here in this passage, Luke focuses first on the cross As a call to discipleship. Look at verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind him. And so here's, you know, Jesus being led off to the cross. He's gone through his trial, he's been beaten. Uh, Pilate has said, All right, we'll have him crucified. The soldiers are leading him off. And Jesus is so weak, he's been beaten all night long. He's been mocked and ridiculed. He can't even carry his own cross. And so here's this poor guy. He's a peasant who's come. He's a Jew who's come for the Passover. He's coming for the meal. He's kind of like, what's going on over here? And they grab him and they throw him and they say, you carry the cross up for him. And he and uh, he carries Jesus' cross up the hill for him. And as a result, this guy Simon Serene becomes a picture, actually, kind of a lived-out parable of. Of what discipleship is because you know two times in the gospel of Luke Jesus has said if anyone would come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me take up your cross and follow me and here's Simon just some guy who happens to be there he's thrown behind Jesus and he's uh, he's a picture of that this is what we're supposed to do this is what we're called to do is as Jesus goes to the cross we're supposed to take up our cross (laughs) and follow him And what that means is that the cross is the way of life that God is saving us into. A cruciform life, a cross-shaped life is the life um, that God is saving us into. Um, And, you know, this is actually very different than the message that many of us actually in many churches is being said You know, what does it look like? What does a Christian life look like? Uh, We want desperately to hear that what a Christian life looks like is that God wants to make me rich and beautiful and popular and successful. And the fact is, God, he does want to bless you. God, every good gift that you have comes from God's hand. He loves, he's the father of of lights. He gives good gifts. Everything we have comes from his hands. And we should ask him for the things we want. And he loves to give us good things. But God cares far more about making us like Jesus. That's the center of that we would be the kind of people that in order to um, to be at peace with people, to be reconciled with people, we would suffer for them. That we would take up the cross and be like Jesus. God cares far more about who we are than what we have. God cares far more about who we are than than what we have. And so... um, The first thing about the cross is this is the kind of people that God is making us into. As we look at Jesus going and suffering for us, that's the kind of people. It's people who die in order for others, who suffer for others. And the question is, how do you become that kind of person? How does that kind of transformation happen in your life? and You go from being you know, a selfish, kind of self-absorbed person to someone who is willing to suffer for others. How does that kind of transformation happen? Well, um, you know, what's really interesting here is this guy, Simon Cyrene, who's just the peasant guy from the field, who the soldiers grab and said, carry Jesus across. Uh, we know that Simon uh, became a well-known Christian after this episode. Actually, if you look in the Gospel of Mark, where, when Mark records this, he says that this was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. And commentators say the only reason that Mark would say who Simon's sons were is, is because his sons must have been well-known in the Christian community. They became prominent Christians uh, in the early church. And here's this guy who just happens to be walking by. The soldiers grab hold of him. He's put behind Jesus... And his, he becomes a disciple, and he becomes, uh, his family is transformed. He trains his children to become, become up leaders in the church because of, of what happened to him in this scene. And uh, what he saw, after Simon was grabbed and had a cross put on him and he followed Jesus up, what he watched, he watched Jesus' conversations. He watched Jesus get nailed. He watched Jesus praying from the cross. He watched Jesus' conversation with the criminals on the side. And as he watched all those things, his life was transformed. And actually, what we know is uh, that uh, the reason that Simon's name appears in this passage is because this is Simon's account. You know, at the beginning of Luke, Luke said, I went and I asked all these people... Uh, For an eyewitness account of what happened in Jesus' life. And he sprinkles people's names throughout the Gospel of Luke. The reason he's doing that is he's saying, this is the account of Simon. Simon's still alive. If you want to go ask him whether this happened, go. this is a public document. If you want to ask him whether this happened, go and ask him. And uh, that's why we have this. Is that Simon watched Jesus go to the cross and it transformed him. What did he see? What did he witness that was so powerful to him? Well, that's the next five. So we have six things. Uh, The first one is, it's a call of of what our life is going to look like when we become disciples of Jesus. The next five are about God and what God is doing in the cross. And in order to get number one, you need the next five. (laughs) You need the next five to to become a disciple. To answer the call of discipleship, you need to be compelled by the next five. And the next five, tell us about what God is doing. Okay, so first... What is the cross? It's a call to discipleship. But next, the cross, what does it tell us about God? It is a picture of God's wrath. The cross is a picture of God's wrath. Now, um, I know that that's unnerving for some of you. Uh, That's, uh, you know, we... uh, unsettling to think of God and his wrath, but um, it's terribly terribly important. We don't understand the cross unless we understand God's wrath. Look at verse 27. This is what it says. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and women who were mourning and lamenting him. You know, by the way, I just want to make a little comment here. Uh, Some people say that the Bible gives a, a, a negative picture of women, a kind of demeaning picture of women. Here again... Is Jesus going to the cross. Everyone's abandoned him. His disciples, his male disciples have all abandoned him. Uh, The Jews have all abandoned him. The Romans uh, are sentencing him to be crucified. The only people whose hearts have any sympathy for Jesus is the women here, as they mourn for him as he goes to the cross. And, you know, actually someone just, I heard someone point out recently that um, there is actually no woman in any of the gospel records, if all the women that Jesus has an encounter with and meets Not one of them is depicted negatively. Again and again, the Bible says that the women get Jesus. They're the ones that that understand him the most. And that's actually uh, been proven true again and again in the church, is that there is an extremely positive view of women. That's just a little side note. And so here are the women. They're mourning and they're lamenting in them. But then uh, it says this in verse 28. But turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem... Do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never cursed. Then they will will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For they do these things when the wood is green. What will happen when it is dry? Now, um, what Jesus is talking about here is there's an impending judgment that's going to come on Jerusalem. He's in Jerusalem right now, and he uh, he predicted in around 30 AD that in 70 AD, uh, within a generation, the Romans were going to not just crucify him, but they were going to destroy the whole city of Jerusalem, and that happened. And he says, listen, terrible things are coming, that the Romans are going to come upon upon the city. Uh, Jerusalem fell, and the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, and he's predicted that a number of times throughout throughout the Gospel of Luke. And what he says is that... um, God's judgment is actually upon God's people for rejecting him. And uh, even more than that, you know, this thing where he talks about have the, the mountains fall on us and the hills cover us. He's quoting Hosea 10, which was a passage in the Old Testament where one of the prophets was, was uh, predicting God's judgment to come on his people because of their idolatry. And so one of the things that Jesus is doing is here, as the women are looking at him, he's, they're mourning as he goes to the cross, and they're saying, "What's going on? Why is Jesus going to the cross?" He's evoking for them, saying, "I want you to th- the category you need to be thinking in is God's judgment and God's wrath. And that's what I'm coming under is God's wrath and God's pu- punishment. I'm a part of it." And you know, for some of you, I know you say, you know, how can I believe in a God of wrath? How could I believe in that?" you know, I mean, the pictures that it evokes for us, you know, the red face and the steam coming out of the ears and kind of going crazy, and is God really red-faced and, and uh, going crazy and raging? How, how could I give my heart to a God like that, who, who's described as wrathful? Let me just take a few minutes to just say a few reasons why, why we absolutely need to believe in a God of, a God of wrath. First of all, um, God has suffered under His wrath Himself. God has suffered under His wrath Himself. This is amazing. Look, look at uh, look at verse thirty-one. For the, for if they do these things, this is what Jesus says. For if they do these things, as the Romans do these things, when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? And what he's, what he's saying there is that he's going to be crucified by the Romans, and that God is the Romans are this instrument of God's wrath and judgment. And what he's saying is that it's coming upon me. You know, if it happens when it's green, when the wood is green, when I'm here, when I'm in Jerusalem and there's life here, I am the life, this is, you know, the most possibility for these people is when I'm here, uh, uh, the Romans are coming upon us, it's going to continue to come upon you even worse in 70 AD. And what Jesus is saying is, uh, is that the wrath of God did not just fall on on people or on us or on on uh, the Jews. The wrath of God fell on Jesus himself. God himself put himself under his wrath. And so this can't be just us. You know, when we picture God's wrath, we, we picture this kind of distant judge who's angry and kind of indifferent and just placing judgments on people and he's kind of casting out wrath left and right. That's not the God that we have in this picture. We have a God who's himself coming under the, under the consequences of the wrath. But secondly... Another reason why we should believe in the wrath of God is because we want a God of justice. We want a God of justice. Now you might not know that, but uh, when I was in seminary, uh, I heard a, one of the professors shared a story about a pastor, actually, whose daughter had been uh, had been sexually assaulted. She'd been she'd been raped, actually, and. After this came out, and she came to her father looking f- to him for words, what are you going to say to me about this? And what he said to her is, Well, God's brought this into your life for your sanctification. God's made this uh, to, for your spiritual edification. That's what he said to his daughter after she just had this terrible thing happen to her. He said, It's for your sanctification? Where's the rage? He should have been enraged that, that this happened to her. He said, I want justice. I'm going to find out who this is. I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to defend you. This is wrong. I'm going to stand against this. That's what we would expect from him. It's not some cold indifference. Oh, people may make mistakes. We, we expect uh, wrath. And the fact is that our world is full of things that are deeply wrong like that. And if God is really a God of love, we expect him to be a god of wrath at it. He doesn't just say, "Oh, uh, oh, people make mistakes. Uh, everyone makes mistakes. It's no big deal." We expect him to be angry, and uh, this is what uh, this is what Tim Keller says: If you love a person and you see someone ruining them, even themselves, you get angry, and. Um, We want God to be offended at the wickedness in the world. And what the thing is, that the Bible says that that evil, the things that God should be angry at, the things that he should be wrathful at, that we want him to be angry at, actually live in us too. You know, there's a, I I put a quote from you on page three from Alexander Solzhenitsyn. This is what he says. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? The line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every one of us. We want a God of wrath and justice, except when it has to do with us. And so um, and the th- we want a God of wrath. We do. The third reason why we have to believe in a God of wrath is because the cross doesn't make sense without it. If there's no wrath, if there's no anger, then why was Jesus dying? Why did Jesus go to the cross? Why didn't, why didn't he just make peace? Why was he suffering so badly? Why did he think that was necessary? It's because he had to take the wrath for us. And, uh, and so when we look at the cross, this is the hardest part of the cross. We see a picture of God's wrath. This is what, this is God's attitude towards the sin and wickedness in the world is, um, is wrath. And um, it should cause us to wake up to the reality of God's wrath is something that each one of us will have to face. Now, this is exactly what Jesus is saying to these women. Look at, um, look at verse 28. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. As you look at me and you weep and you say, What is going on? Why is Jesus going to the cross? He's saying, Look at what you're going to have to face yourselves. And the fact is, you've got to hear this. When Jesus tells us that we've got to face... God's judgment, God's wrath. Some of us think that, you know, he's trying to beat us up. He's trying to make us feel terrible about ourselves. And uh, that's not what he's doing. It's because he loves you. And the fact is that the reason that, that uh, Jesus is saying that here is because it leads to the third meaning of the cross. Is uh, not just that it's a picture of God's wrath, but that also the cross is an offer of forgiveness. The cross is an offer of forgiveness. Um, we have one, some of the most amazing words that were ever spoken by a human in these verses. Look at verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put uh, to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And, uh, you know, it's startling that... Uh, that Luke is so kind of matter of fact about the crucifixion. It's just one little line there, and they crucified him, and then now on with the next story. You know, he doesn't go into a lot of gory details. Uh, you know, a lot of times as Christians we like to get into the gory details of what was happening to Jesus' body when he was being crucified, and the lungs were collapsing, or what you know, is how much blood he lost. The Bible doesn't do that because the physical torment wasn't uh, the main thing that was that was terrible about the cross. Uh, to Luke, it was much more the shame of it. I mean, he points out that here's, here's Jesus, a couple common criminals. He's kind of thrown in with the common criminals. They say, oh, let's crucify him. You know, the soldiers are just going about the business. It's kind of the routine. Let's just crucify him. And they throw him out the, on the cross and, and they crucify him. And the un- injustice of it is so unbearable. And yet in the midst of that injustice, this is what Jesus says, Father, forgive them. It's because the heart of the cross is this an offer of forgiveness. God wants to forgive us. He wants to, um, uh, that's the heart of what it is. And, you know, I'll tell you, many of you struggle with the question of will God forgive me? Uh, You know, we say, I've done so many times that I've betrayed God. I've done uh, wrong things. I've sinned against him. How many times can I go back asking forgiveness? You know, if there's like a a vat of forgiveness water or something, you know, when's it going to dry up? Can I keep going back and asking for forgiveness? Um, and uh, the thing that we need to see, if that's you, is there more forgiveness for me? Is you need to look at the people in this passage. Here they are. These are, these are soldiers who are heartless. They're, they're, they're cold. They don't even care. They're just crucifying Jesus, some other criminal. And he's saying to them, uh, they're stripping him naked. They're mocking him. They're beating him. And Jesus is saying to them, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. If he's going to say, forgive them, to these soldiers, how much more is he going to say that to you? How much more is Jesus going to say that to you who love him, who are here, you're here hearing his word. How much more does he want to uh, uh, forgive you for fault after fault and plead for you and to pray to God for you for your forgiveness? He does. He does it over and over. That's our Savior, is the one who's on the cross. And so on the one hand, is you know, it's an offer of forgiveness. And some of you are say, you know, I struggle with knowing whether God really will forgive me. And you need to see Jesus on the cross. But some of us also say, well, you know, of course God's going to forgive me. Uh, God's a God of love. Doesn't he forgive everyone? And, you know, there's a... Uh, um, and, and we say, well, why do we have to go through the bloodiness of the cross, the brutality of the cross for this forgiveness? You know, when I forgive someone, I don't need a bloody cross to forgive them. I say, hey, don't worry about it, you know? No sweat, right? Why can't God just do that? Also, you know, no sweat. Don't worry about it. And uh, actually, uh, uh, Frederick Nietzsche, who was a philosopher in the end of the nineteenth century, a German who was very critical of Christianity, he uh, he said this about the church. He says that Christianity needs sickness, making sick. Listen to this, making sick is the true hidden objective of the church's whole system of salvation and procedures. One is not converted to Christianity. One must be sufficiently sick for it. And what uh, Nietzsche's criticism is, he says, you know, the church needs to make people feel awful so that they'll embrace this bloody cross. And he's very critical of the God on the cross And, you know, actually, that's true. Churches can do that. Churches can say, you know, our main objective is to make people feel awful so that they'll believe uh, the message that we're trying to say. Um, But the fact is that true forgiveness always involves suffering. True forgiveness, if you're going to forgive someone, what you're saying is I'm not going to put the punishment on them. I'm going to absorb the punishment myself. And the only reason why I say, why can't God just... uh, you know, say, hey, no sweat, don't worry about it, it's, it's not a big deal, why can't God say that? Well, if you've ever been deeply hurt by someone, and they try to say, you know, hey, come on, why can't we just get over this? Can't you just say no sweat, it's no big deal? It's, it's, uh, let's just get on to the next thing. What does that mean about that person? Is they don't really see the severity of how much they've hurt, hurt you. And what the cross tells us is it's true forgiveness. And until we get down to how deeply uh, we've hurt. We've rejected God. Will His love and offer of forgiveness really get down into our bones, and to really get down into how uh, deeply into us? And so the, the next me- that meaning of the cross is that the heart of it is that it's an offer of forgiveness. God says, "Come and be forgiven. I will do it." Jesus loves you that much. Now, if Jesus is going to suffer because He loves us that much, it leads to the, to the fourth meaning of the cross is that the re- ca- cross is a reflection of God's heart. The cross is to us a reflection of God's heart. It is a picture to us of God's character. If you want to know what God's like, look at the cross. And, you know, it's very interesting uh, that Jesus is, you know, he's mocked while he's on the cross. They're, they're making jokes at him, and they're kind of crucifying him and stripping him and, you know, trying to, trying to get his clothes from one another. And, uh, and yet everything that they say about him is pretty much true. Okay, look at verse 35 again. And the people stood by watching by the rulers, uh, or, and the people stood by watching, but the rulers sco- scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he, is the Christ, uh, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. So they're mocking him. What do they say about him? They say, oh, here's this guy, he's a king, and he saves other people, but he doesn't save himself. You know, it's like, wow, that's about right. (laughs) He's a king who saves other people, doesn't save himself. They're mocking him, and yet, as they're watching him on the cross, they actually see who he really is, who God really is. The character of God, um, what is God like? He is a king who saves others, but doesn't save himself it's very interesting, you know, it's the Romans here who are crucifying Jesus. And what are the Romans doing? The Romans have a project to make a worldwide kingdom where everyone worships the king or the emperor. And the way that they, how do they get people to go, you know, how do they establish their kingdom? Well, if someone rises up as an as a opponent to them, uh, an enemy to them, what do they do? They crucify them. That's what's happening to Jesus. Jesus was a threat to the kingdom, so they crucify him. What's Jesus doing? Jesus is also building a worldwide kingdom where all people come and worship the emperor. But look at how opposite he is. What does he do with his enemies? Does he crucify them? He's crucified for them. And the way that Jesus destroys his enemies is by transforming them into friends. By making an offer of forgiveness. Come and be forgiveness. He transforms his enemy into friends. That's how he destroys them. It's not by killing them, but by being crucified for them. And, uh, you know, people will often say, you know, I believe in a God of love. I believe that there's a God out there who's loving. How do you know that? How do you know that there's, that there's a God of love? Well, the Bible says that, the, that love is an event, Love is something you do. It's something that's in the flesh and blood. It's an action. It's not just a feeling. It's not just an emotion. It's not just a spirit of love. It's something that's lived out. And so, you know, um, you know, if you're not a Christian and you say I believe in a God of love and someone asks you, "Well, how do you know God's loving?" You're going to say, "Well, I feel it in my heart. I can feel in my heart that God's loving." Well, <laughs> what if your heart, what if your feelings change? What if I uh, what if your feelings are wrong? What if that's not really how God is? We have all kinds of wrong feelings about things. But if you ask a Christian, how do you know that God loves you? What do we do? We look at the event of the cross. It's been lived out. Look at what he's done. Look at, uh, uh, look at the action that he is on the cross for me, that we can look at it and we can see what God's character is because it's been lived out. It's been acted out for us. And what's happened throughout history is that humans have been trying to pursue God, find out who God is, through philosophy, through speculation. Who is God? It's all a mystery. I, I remember that even as a kid, wondering, who is the God who's out there? I, I wonder who he is. And it's all speculation. It's all guessing. And yet, as we look at the cross, we see this is who your God is. This is who the creator is. Is it? He's the king who, doesn't, who saves others but doesn't save himself. And so here, you know, here's... I know we're only four through six, okay? <laughs> but already, there's a lot to the cross. What is it? It's called the discipleship. It's a way of life. It's, uh, it's a picture of God's wrath. It's an, and then it's an offer of forgiveness. And yet, it's also, it shows us, this is what God's character is. If you want to know who God is, don't speculate. Look at this event. Look at something that happened in history. But now, uh, we move to probably the most technical. So, if, gear yourself up. for the, This is probably the most technical uh, meaning of the cross but it's terribly important is that the cross is a legal transaction the cross is a legal transaction now follow me here um, what do I mean by that um, you know throughout history there's been all kinds of metaphors that people have said this is what the this is what's happening in the cross uh, there's there's kind of the Christus Victor metaphor where people say well what Jesus is doing on the cross is he's becoming victorious over the powers of evil so you know here's the roman wicked roman oppressors who crucify him and he has uh taken the crucifixion and then he's risen from the dead and he's conquered over them he's he's conquered the evil in the world he's he's the victor he's triumphant that's the main thing that's happening on the cross or other people say you know it's the it's a rede- redemption a ransom is the main metaphor. You know, redemption or ransom is the uh, the, the metaphor for uh, slavery, um, the slave trade. that says that we were enslaved to sin, and Jesus died, and with his blood, he bought us out of slavery, so that we're no longer slaves, but we're, we're free and we're sons. And so it's redemption is the main metaphor. Or others have said, uh, this was uh, Peter uh, Abelard, who uh, in the in the medieval period said that moral influence was the main thing of the cross. God was showing us how much he loved us. That he, would, he was not selfless. That he would sacrifice himself for us. That's the main thing of the cross is showing us how God loves him. Now, all these things are true. But when you come to uh, um, the early Christians, one of the most important metaphors was the legal metaphor. Using the imagery of a courtroom or a trial... And in the conversation, as Jesus is actually hanging on the cross, and he has a conversation with the, with the cr- uh, criminals on the cross, that's, that's the subject that they're talking about. Look, look again at verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanging railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? Right sentencing, condemnation is legal language and we indeed justly for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds but this man has done nothing wrong and so the conversation is around legal matters of sentencing and trials and justice and being innocent or receiving your due reward it's all about a verdict it is all about the verdict that they're receiving And um, what's interesting is that when the Apostle Paul was reflecting on the meaning of the cross in the book of Romans, the legal understanding for Paul was one of the most important metaphors for understanding what the cross was. uh, This is what he says in Romans 5.9. We have now been justified by his blood. We have been justified by his blood. Now, when Paul uses that word justified, he's borrowing uh, dikaio, which is a a legal term from the courtroom, of being pronounced righteous. To be justified, it means to be pronounced righteous. And what that means is that when Jesus dies on the cross for us, by his blood, we are not simply made righteous. We're pronounced righteous. We receive a new verdict, a status before God, that God has declared us to be righteous in Christ. And so, um, what's happening in the cross is a legal transaction that Jesus gets the guilt of our verdict, uh, gets our penalty as guilty, and we receive his verdict as righteous. Now, you know, that might sound kind of uninspiring uh, to you of courtrooms and you know, legal terms and sentencing. You say, you know, it's very impersonal, judges and juries and uh, you know, laws and things like that. But the reality is, Um, that verdicts and judgments are terribly important to us. You know, when you criticize someone, you say you don't like someone, what is the the main reason that you don't like someone uh, that, you know, God brings in your life or that you work with? Over and over again, we hear that we don't like people because they're judgmental. They're judging us. And actually, one of the deepest things that's in our hearts that we wrestle with, that causes us uh, anxiety, depression, that um, that runs our life, is the question: Am I good enough? And the reality for each one of us is, deep down at the core of who we are, we deeply want someone to look at us and make a verdict on our life. What are you worth? Are you acceptable? Are you approved? The question of verdicts, the things, even though it sounds so distant to us, it r- drives our life. We're running after the approval uh, uh, of, of, of people and running for a verdict. And when you're in Christ, by faith, through his blood, the Bible says you have the very verdict of, of Jesus on you. Righteous, beloved, accepted, approved you have, and it's not just the verdict of some man, it's the very verdict of God has been pronounced on you. And what happens in the Christian life is when we believe that, when we embrace that, that verdict, that you are, God, when you are righteous in God's sight, you are beloved, you are approved by him, when that lives inside of us, we, uh, it's like a seed that's buried deep down in us, that verdict, and it begins to grow and it begins to change us so that we begin to turn into the person that God has already pronounced us to be. God places his verdict on our lives and we begin to become the person that God has already pronounced us to be. And I'll tell you why that verdict is so attractive, so meaningful, so powerful is because the verdict of Jesus is is a taste of heaven for us. And this leads to the last meaning of the cross is that the cross is a doorway into paradise. The cross is a doorway into paradise into paradise. And you see that in verse 42. And he said, Jesus, this is a criminal, said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, you know, when we hear that word paradise, we think Hawaii, the beach. Okay. So Jesus says, today, we'll be at the beach together, you know, umbrella drink and lemonade. We're going to be beach volleyball, is what we're thinking. But uh, in the Bible, that word, the word that's used there, the Greek word uh, paradesis, is a word that in the Old Testament, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, was used for the Garden of Eden. The garden was paradise, and the Garden of Eden was the place where man was first made to dwell, where we we were naked, we were unashamed. And we lived face-to-face with God in a garden. We dwelt with him. We were friends with God. We knew him. We walked with him. We communed with him. And the Bible says that's paradise. Is to be unashamed, no fear, no sorrow, no brokenness, no disappointment, and to be embraced and to fully know that you're loved by God. And what's amazing here is here's this criminal hanging on the cross. And this is the criminal, the two criminals. The other criminal says, you know, Jesus, why don't you save us? This criminal says, no, we deserve what we got. He's hanging on the cross, and he says, I belong here. I deserve this. I know I've lived this shameful life. And and probably everyone else who's standing around there thought that this was a man who did not deserve to live. And yet Jesus said to him, I want to be with you in paradise. I want to be in the garden with you. And I've made a way, today you will be with me. And what the cross is, is the doorway back into the garden of God. Where we'll live with him and dwell with him. And the fact is, why is that? It's because God wants to be with you. God really wants to be with us. He wants to dwell with us. That's the storyline of the whole Bible. Is that I will be your God and you will be with my people. And I will dwell among you. And he's provided a way in the cross. Do you believe it? Will you walk through it? So there it is. Look, six things. Look at, and we've just scratched the surface, the meaning of the cross. There's layers and layers and layers of it. And Simon of Cyrene, who carried that cross behind Jesus, he saw all these things and it transformed him. It made him into a new man. It transformed his family. So he's trained his sons to be leaders in the church. So may Christ Church Bellingham never grow out of the cross. Never get tired of hearing of it. Never lose our wonder at what God has done for us in Jesus, in the cross, as we look forward to the day where we will be in paradise with with him. We will be in the garden with him. We will dwell with him forever and ever. That God loved us so much he'd give us his own son to die in our place. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you... For your word how complex how rich it is all these things that we've talked about give us hearts to digest them apply them to our lives that we would believe and that we would rest in the verdict that we have in jesus that we are accepted we are approved not because of what we've done but because of what he's done for us we thank you for the gospel and the good news give us hearts that hope for the paradise where we will be with you in christ's name